I accept that I'm getting divorced. I accept that I'm a federally convicted felon. I accept that my finances are ruined. I accept that I'm in prison. And it was such a very painful process because everything that I was accepting was a really shitty thing to accept. And so it stung while I was doing it. But when I was done, I was was astounded by what I felt. I felt freedom inside prison. Welcome back to another episode of I Am This Age, a podcast proving it's never too late, you're never too old, so go do that thing you're always talking about. I'm Molly Sider. Today I talk to Craig Stanland, author of the book Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. We talk about his journey from being a newlywed and top tech executive in New York City to going to prison for mail fraud, and how he's reinvented himself since he's been out. Craig gets deeply vulnerable and shares so much of his story with me, including his experience with thoughts about suicide. September is Suicide Awareness Month. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, whether you are in crisis or not, call or live chat the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 2738255 Talking with someone about your thoughts and feelings can save your life. Before we head into today's show, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening and tuning in to each episode. And if you're loving these, please rate and review in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to tell all your friends about me. Now, on to the episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Craig Stanland. I am 48 years old. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a reinvention architect, a best-selling author, and a TEDx speaker. And you're probably wondering what a reinvention architect is, and I'm sure Molly and I will get into that. But really quickly, I help people connect with their passion, purpose, so that they can find meaning and fulfillment. I help them start over and reinvent their lives to create something extraordinary for themselves. So that's me. Hi, Craig. Hi, Molly. How are you? Thank you for coming today. I'm quite wonderful. First, I just like really need to gush about your book a little bit. (laughs) Um, Because this book that you wrote, which yes, it's about, um, it's called, first of all, it's called Blank Canvas. And yes, it's about your time in prison and then what happens after you get out. But this book is about so much more than that. It's so good. Um, First of all, it's really, really well written. But also it just like oozes vulnerability. I mean, you cover like every thought and feeling I could ever imagine. You are not easy on yourself. Um, and somehow you make this story of like com- of going into prison and coming out of prison relatable, which is which is 
incredible. It's a really, really um, incredibly brave way to tell a story and everyone needs to read this book. So thank you for writing it. And oh my God, thank you so much for those super kind words. It's amazing to hear that kind of feedback. And it really, part of the, that vulnerability was driven from the amount of shame that I experienced because I knew what I was doing was wrong, the committing fraud against one of the world's largest technology companies, the reason I ended up in prison. I knew it was wrong. And there was so much shame behind that. And I knew when I started writing and when I started re reinventing my life, that if I didn't own my story, it was going to own me for the rest of my life. And it took six years to write that book, to get to that level of vulnerability, to get to that level of rawness, because I just, I knew that I could go deeper with each subsequent draft and that I really had an obligation to the reader to be able to, to do that. And yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very kind to myself in some part of that, but it was really, it was how I felt at that time. And I really, I thought it was important to share it as transparently as possible. And it turned out that writing that book was quite literally one of the most painful things I've ever done. And it was also one of the most healing things I've ever done. Yeah. And it, I think it's because I was that vulnerable and I went to those places that I didn't want to go to. It's, it's awesome. Um, so, okay, let's get into your story. Um, so you worked for this big tech company in New York um, and you were kind of a big deal there. You made a lot of money. You owned a home in Connecticut. You shared with your then wife, Kyla. Kyla, is that, am I saying her name right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Um, you wore a nice clothing. You ate at fancy restaurants. Um, but eventually you start, as you said, you start to take advantage of like your partner company's warranty policy. And essentially you were committing mail fraud. That's exactly right. What was it that drove you to this choice? So I was, everything that you just said, um, it's kind of hard for me to say it was kind of a big deal, but I was always in the top three of the company. And my performance actually started dwindling. Uh, I wasn't working quite as hard because I got so caught up in the lifestyle of those fancy dinners, of going out and shopping and doing all the things. So I wasn't working as hard. And on top of that, the products that I was selling were becoming more commoditized. So the margins were shrinking. So my paychecks were shrinking. And I've created this identity that is rooted in being the guy who can buy everything, the guy who's got the nice things. It was all about the lifestyle. And so my very identity is getting threatened because my paychecks are shrinking. And I started at the bottom of this company. And it's important to say that because starting at the bottom allowed me to learn how every single component of our company and our partner company, how they worked. And so when I start seeing my shrinking paychecks and the threat to my identity, I realized I had an opportunity to exploit our partner company's warranty policy for my financial gain. It was kind of like finding treasure in a sense. I, I, I figured out how to solve my quote unquote problem. And I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I needed to solve that problem. So I moved ahead with it anyway. And how long were you doing it for? It was just under a year. It was um, a little over 10 months. And were you ever scared while you were committing this crime? Like you obviously knew what you were doing. The first time 
that I committed the fraud. It was it was all done through my laptop. It was done through emails and you know different web applications. So it involved a lot of hitting the enter button, hitting the mouse button every the first time I did it. My my heart spoke and it said, "Don't do this. Stop. This is not the way." So it just it it spoke to me so crystal clear, but I ignored it. And to perpetuate that fraud for just under a year, there was thousands of choices all made with my voice saying, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. And so the fear did start compounding. And there was one particular point. I was either putting clothes in the dryer or taking clothes out of the, out of the dryer, but it dawned on me that the list amount, the list dollar amount of my fraud, how much I had absconded with, if you will, had just crossed a million dollars. And it was, it was like a fist clenched around my heart and squeezed with all its might. And I could just feel it in the pit of my stomach. And it was, it was a moment of pure fear. And even through that, I still continued. It's so interesting that you brought up like the computer part, because I feel like um, it just reminded me of, you know, like shopping online where you just don't necessarily, I'm just curious if there's like any, anything that's like relatable, but you, you know, sometimes you just like, it's so easy to like press buy, press buy, press buy. And you just don't even realize you don't necessarily feel it as much. Cause you know, it's just like through the computer or there's, you're not interacting with another human. You're just, it's just sort of you and this like technology and just do you know that had any big, like any part of it or any, like that made it a little bit easier or like sort of, you know, disconnected you from like the actual like thing that you were doing? Does that make sense? It it makes complete sense. And I've actually read a little bit of research about white collar crime and the fact that most of it is done remotely. It is oftentimes, you know, we hear the horrible stories of people taking money directly from victims, but a lot of white collar crime is also done through a computer against a massive corporation. And there is that disconnect. There is that not an individual. And the fact that you can just hit the enter button and that you can hit, you know, the, the mouse button. I don't know if I thought of that at the time, but your question and reading some of that, I can, I can relate to it. And I have to imagine that there was some of that helping me to work through the voices that were telling me not to do it. So interesting. So eventually you stop doing this, you change companies um, and you're at your new job, at your new office. It's the second week of work. You're looking towards the future um, and you get a voicemail from the FBI that they're at your house with a warrant for your arrest. Your wife is home. And you have to essentially like sneak out of the office, drive home where you're eventually taken into custody. And then you're released out on bail and you go home to await your hearing for what was it like six months or something? It was, it's, it's people I don't think quite understand the time that passes from arrest to going to prison. I had no idea until I read this. I was, it's, mind-blowing but please go on it's mind-blowing and it's funny a lot of people so mine was i was arrested on october 1st and i ended up reporting to prison on august 14th 
So that is, let's say, I mean, what is that? Um, 10 and a half months or so between getting arrested and actually going to prison. I was lucky. That was fast. There are some people who wait six years. There are some wow. people who literally wait six years from arrest to going to prison to get that closure. Uh, but those, those 10 and a half months were some of the most terrifying months of my entire life because of the uncertainty. You know, we are, we as humans crave certainty and to not know what our future holds, especially when that future could be prison, where I didn't understand that I'd be going to a prison camp where my safety would be pretty much okay. I thought I'd be going to the prisons that we see on TV and in the movies. I'm only five foot four and weigh 130 pounds. I thought I was going to get raped and beaten every day. And I lived with that uncertainty for a very long time until somebody actually told me, you'll be going to a camp, your safety is going to be fine. But it was, so October 1st, I pled guilty in January. Mm -hmm. Then I was sentenced in June. And then I had two months after I was sentenced to 24 months. And I had two months before I had to report to prison. So it's, it's just all these different milestones along the way. Oh my goodness, that's such torture. So you were essentially like already in jail before you even went to prison. That's mentally and even mentally and even a little, I would say even slightly physically in the sense that I was on pretrial uh, probation, which is if I was to cross state lines, I had to notify somebody. I had to notify somebody when I was crossing a state line and when I was returning back to my home state of Connecticut. You know, I had to um, disclose, because it was a financial crime, I had to disclose all of my finances. I mean, all of them. You think like applying for a mortgage is a lot of paperwork? Try going through this. I mean, this is like a dissection of your life. And it, it, in a sense, is its own form of prison because you really are just at the whim of everybody else. Yeah. Did you have any hope at all during that time? I had an empty hope that I would receive probation for what I had done. My preach, one of my pretrial probation officers looked at my case and they said, oh, this is nothing. You should get probation. And then I had my attorney telling me, you're going to jail. So I had two different, two different you know, ends of the spectrum. And obviously, I was really connected to the probation component of it. But in reality, I knew I was going to prison. Wow. What a mindfuck. <laughs> oh, my God. Such is such a, such a mindfuck. It really was to have somebody in the system who's seen a ton of people tell you that this is nothing, you should only get probation for this. And my attorney just, you know, being very honest, but no, you're going to prison, prepare for that. I'm just really wanting to grab onto that probation so badly and still not even understanding that that would have been great to not, to not go to prison would have been amazing, but it still would have had so many of the ripple effects because I still would have had the guilty plea. I still would have lost everything. You know, it still would have had so many things to it. I don't think it was quite all the rainbows I was making it out to be. Right. Oh, man. So, okay, so you get sentenced to two years in prison, um, and you're 40 at this point. And I'm curious, like, did two years sound like an eternity? Or 
did it feel like, okay, tears isn't so bad. I'll be out in no time. Like what did it feel like? It felt like this. I love this question um, because I give, I've given this a lot of thought. It felt like an eternity. It felt like an absolute eternity. And when I first got into prison and I was not in a good place, I was not in a good head place, headspace. And when I started really contemplating suicide, that time was such a massive burden. It seemed like my world was darkness and there was zero light. And I said, I, you know, I can't see an end to this, even though I know there's an end, I couldn't see it. Then when I found hope and I started rebuilding, all of a sudden that time I looked at it and I was thinking this giant burden and realized it was a gift. I have no bills. I have no real responsibilities. I have none of the stresses of the outside world. I'm getting fed, I'm safe, and I can work on myself. So I looked at that time as a gift, and then I did a little math. I, I, I came up with my expected, uh, my life expectancy. I came up with a number of 84. Don't ask me how I came up with that. It was just a very arbitrary number. And so I did the math though. What is two years out of 84 years of living? And it was 2.84% of my overall life. And I looked at that and I go, if I can't do 2.84% of my entire life, then I've got other problems. When I realized how tiny it was over my overall scope of life, it made it, it changed my entire perspective of the time. I know we talked a little bit about, this is not the same thing, but I, you know, going into like the pandemic, for example, um, I had just turned, my birthday was like the week before everything shut down and I had just turned 42 and it felt like, no, like this is, this is not how I, you know, expected to spend my 42nd year, but also I felt like I was running out of time. I felt like, you know, if I were 32, it would be easier to deal with this, but 42 and it feels um, like just, you know, as we get older, just time feels like more and more, um, precious. It really does. And I actually have, I have a tattoo on my right forearm. It says memento mori, which is Latin for remember you will die. Mm. And it is, some people think it's very morbid, but I actually have it as a celebration of life. And it's to everybody else, it's upside down. But to me, I can read it when I look down because it's for me. It's not for anybody else. And it is exactly what you were saying is that preciousness of time and how valuable that time is and how do we invest it? And I, cause I don't like the word spend when it comes to time, time is not a currency. It's something that we can invest. And in. it's like, where are we investing our time? And I also think it's so funny that you thought, you know, it's so funny, the different classes that we view our life on, where you said, if I was 32, there'd be much easier. I know. I'm 42. I mean, the story <laughs> that our, like our brains are making up around these things. Like hundred percent. How do you know insane. that? You don't, I mean, we don't know that, but we just, we come up with these like rationalizations, you know, if I was 32, this would be a whole heck of a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so silly. It's completely irrational. And yet that's, you know, where my mind went. Yeah. Well, we try, yeah, I think we just, we, we, we try to, um, back to that certainty, we try to give some certainty to something. We try to, mm-hmm. if something doesn't have, and our brain doesn't necessarily have a closed loop, we'll close the loop, even if it's using something highly irrational 
we close the loop and then we feel better. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I'm curious, you just talked a, um, a lot about it, but what, what was the, what scared you the most after you were sentenced, after you were, knew you were heading to prison? I knew that I was going to a camp and when I got my designation letter, they, they, the Bureau of Prisons sends out a designation letter and I got what is considered one of the best prisons for white collar offenders in the entire country. I told somebody who had been through the system, had a lot of experience and I told them where I was going and he literally said, he's like, you hit the, you hit the prison lottery. And so I felt very good about that, but there's still so much uncertainty. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know the physical surroundings. I don't know how I'm going to be there. So that uncertainty was all still very crushing and still very scary. And when I, when I checked in, I actually had to check in at the medium security facility, which is next door to the camp. The medium security facility is the ones that we see on TV. That is the big, scary place. So I had to go into the catacombs of that to check in. So my first impression was not a great one, but when I was done with the check-in process and I got to go to the camp and I saw my surroundings, I, I knew I was going to be okay. And believe it or not, that first night of sleep was one of the best nights of sleep I had had in 10 and a half months because I knew I was going to be okay. And just to clarify, um, how, why did you get to go to the camp and not the other that it was just, that's just where like white collar uh, criminals go. Well, I can, I can, I'll give a, a brief overview. The people, when they go through the criminal justice system are assigned a point value. Mm -hmm. And that point value is determined on the nature of the crime, how many victims, um, any past history. And so you're assigned basically a security number. That security number informs what level of prison you're going to. In the federal system, you have basically a high, a medium, a low, and a camp. And it's basically, it's all just determined by the numbers. So the majority of white collar offenders will go to a camp. However, if their financial gains are so large and they receive the sentence over 10 years, then they're going to go to a low. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and in interesting thing, if you don't mind me adding this, because I think it is interesting, somebody who somebody who starts out at a, at a high level can find themselves in a camp because through good behavior and through time, your security points actually decrease. So you can move from a high to a medium to a low to a camp. And I actually was very friendly with some individuals who had been in the system for you know 20 plus years who started in the high and who had honestly seen everything. And to see, to see how grateful they were to be in the camp Put a really interesting perspective on things. Interesting. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, in that same vein, you refer to um, you refer to the people that you meet in prison as your friends, um, which I think is a really nice way to humanize people in prison and to remember that everyone has a story. Everyone is part of a family. Everyone has thoughts, feelings, and emotions. You did a really, really beautiful job at this. Um, why was this so important for you to include in the book? Because they were a huge component of my journey. And I think it is the notion of humanizing people to let people know that 
we everything you just said that we do have families that we made mistakes that we are normal people who and I don't even want to say made a mistake because I think that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a cop out made terrible decisions and choices is actually taking more responsibility for it but at the end of the day we're still human we still feel shame we still love we still cry still experience all of those things and i think it is so easy for society to do a, a very big us and them you know them being those people yeah. over there they're behind the fence they're bad and it's like no not everybody is and so just to be able to 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 give some humanization to the people inside prison so your marriage ended while you were in prison and in the book you talk about struggling with vulnerability and honesty within your marriage had you always struggled with this or was this connected to the crime it's something i've always struggled with it absolutely is what a what a beautifully insightful question i very quickly learned when i was young that it was quite honestly easier to take the deceptive route than to go the more challenging route and not getting caught and getting away with whatever it may be just reinforces that it works and you know sometimes telling the truth is a very scary thing and a lie is a very easy way to get out of it but what i've realized and i don't want to take us too much on a tangent but i think it's important to say is that by lying all i was doing was predicting a future that i have no control over if i'm to tell the truth i'm guessing what the outcome is going to be i'm guessing what somebody's going to say i'm guessing that i'm not going to like their response all of this is a form of fortune telling which i don't have a crystal ball and what we're doing when we lie is we're really trying to control an outcome as opposed to trusting ourselves to speak the truth and whatever may come of it we know that we'll be okay i think also that when we do that we don't allow the other person to like actually be who they really are as a human and we don't trust that they're able to you know handle whatever it is we want to tell them that, i'm so happy you said that because that's exactly yeah. right because it is it's it's, it's a two-way street and we are we're assuming that the other person can't handle the truth using the example that you gave you know that i wasn't honest with my wife i was assuming that she didn't want to hear that i couldn't afford our lifestyle anymore i was assuming that she would view me as less than you know i was making all of these assumptions out of pure fear when the fact is thinking about who she is as a human being i think she would have and i can't i, I can't you know predict what she would have said even in reverse but just knowing who she is my gut tells me she probably would have loved me more had i been honest had i actually been vulnerable you talk you talked a little bit about this already but i wanted to circle back um you had friends in prison um but prison was still really lonely for you as i imagine it is for a lot of people um and you you talked about feeling suicidal can you talk a little bit about how you got through that period Yeah, I'd love to because I think it's extremely important for people to hear and particularly as we're recording this almost in the middle of National Suicide Awareness Month. 
So I think that is, and it's actually, and it is, and, and, and we're recording it on the 9th, which is right in the middle of Suicide Awareness Prevention Week. Great. Let's talk about it. So this is, this is very, this is very, yes, it's very, very timely. I will rewind just a little bit. And I did already talk about it, but just that shame that I was feeling, it was so overwhelming. And I quite literally thought that I destroyed the greatest gift that we as humans get to be alive, which is love. And I thought I completely destroyed love. And because I destroyed this greatest gift, I was never going to be worthy of love, happiness, or joy ever again. And that's a very heavy burden to carry, to think that the remainder of my life was going to be empty without love, without happiness, without joy. And that really led me to thinking about how I was going to kill myself. And that transformed into this short film that played over and over over and over in my head on a loop of what it would look like to end my own life. It was very vivid. It was very graphic. It was down to the most minute detail. And when it started playing over and over again, it became more raw and more visceral with every time that it replayed where I could literally feel the gun in my mouth. I could feel the bullet exiting the back of my head. I could feel the resignation in myself. And it, it started turning like it was real and I had to make it stop. I had to make it stop because it was just driving me nuts. I couldn't stop the loop. So I started thinking about how I could kill myself. And then out of the blue, my best friend of 30 plus years sends me an email. And we do, we have email in prison. We don't have internet, but we have email. And he says, hey man, can I come for a visit uh, next Saturday or on Saturday? And this was about Wednesday. And I said, yes, absolutely. Because I'm having all these terrible suicidal thoughts that I couldn't share with anybody. Yes, I had friends in prison, but if I mentioned it to them, they could have potentially been so concerned for me that they would have shared with a prison official or a guard who then would basically commit me to solitary confinement. Because if you mention suicide in prison, you get locked in solitary. I couldn't mention it on email. They're monitored, phone calls monitored. So I had to bottle all of this up, but visits are not monitored. So my best friend is coming. I know I can share with him. I can share with him all the terrible thoughts that I'm having. I can share with him that life is not good and that I want it to end. So my buddy shows up, we get some food out of the vending machine. We sit down and I can't tell you the joy that I was feeling inside that I was going to get this weight off of my shoulders. I open my mouth to speak. Before I can say a word, my friend just starts going on that his life is a complete mess. He's getting a divorce. He's got issues at work. He's got financial issues. Just things are not good. And there's such a sadness in my friend's voice. There's such like this despair in his eyes and in his voice that in 30 plus years of friendship, I've never seen before. And it was at that moment where I understood that I had value and that I had worth outside of all the things that I had always thought made me worthy, my things and my ability to buy those things. It didn't matter. I was a friend and nothing more. And just that sliver of understanding that I did have that value and worth that turned my entire life around. I've been talking a lot about 
identity lately and and not in terms of like what we attach ourselves to but um but really like discovering and remembering who we are at our core um like what we truly eval- uh, value as opposed to what we're supposed to value um but also like you said you know who we are as human beings and which is not our accomplishments or our failures so um it it's so it's so challenging because i believe and i'm not blaming society however society has an extreme influence on how we view things that we are our new bmw we are our fancy job title we are our degree from xyz school that we are all of these things it's a very outcome based society it really is if we look at social media we look at all the things if we look i can look to my own family who i love dearly and they're you know this is how they were raised but it's very what is your job title how much money do you make what do you do and it's very again outcome based as opposed to connecting with who we really are and the effort that we put in not the outcome because if we all of a sudden lose our job or we lose our marriage because these things happen now all of a sudden our identity is gone with it and it can happen so quickly and that's why when like when i work with my clients it is we are we are the effort we are not the outcome yeah. yes um i have this saying that i live by um intention over expectation so it's, it's nearly impossible but but let go of expectation and just um really um commit to the intention that's it I love that. And I think so I expectation is I think a horrible word to have these expectations. I love having though for myself and with my clients, you know, setting like a goal, having an idea. I'm not going to get in a car without knowing where I'm going. So, you know, using the book as an example, I'd love to sell x amount of copies. That is my goal, but I'm not attached to that goal. Right. And it's who do I have to become to sell that many copies? How does that person show up in social media in life? What do they do? What are the things that get them to that number? All the while being just unattached to it and connecting with becoming the person who sells X amount of books and tying to that effort. Yeah. And it's so much more rewarding. It's so much more fulfilling. And then if I do sell X amount of copies of my book, that's just icing on the cake. Right. That's just you've been, Because you've been having so much fun all along the way. So it doesn't even matter. But if you do, great. If you don't, great. So much fun all along the way. And we really do when we have this like a big audacious goal and it works with smaller ones too. But when we have to, in a sense, become someone new to be able to achieve that, because it's very hard to create something new being the same person that we are right now. So we do have to become somebody new that that's ours for the rest of our life. We have transformed. We have turned into something else. And that is the true the true, true gift of doing anything. And that's why I said, like, if I actually sell X amount of copies, pure icing on the cake. Yeah, I love that. I feel like I just like sat up straighter in my chair when you said that. You actually did. I could see it. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, okay, do you know Do you know who Viktor Frankl is? My, my, the hair on my arms just stood up. Uh, this is my second conversation about Viktor Frankl um, today. <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> so please, um, uh, please 
and then I'll, I was going to say, ask your question, then I'll go into I all just, my waxing yeah. poetic about it. I won't talk much. I just, um, so, so Victor Frankl was this um, famous Holocaust survivor, survivor and psychiatrist. And he believed in this like idea of the will to meaning. Um, so I know you know this, but so in other words, like humans can survive almost anything if they're able to find meaning and purpose in it. Um, and so I was just, I thought of this at, when I thought of you and I'm just curious how this, well, what you, what do you have to say? How does this theory apply to your situation? But also tell me all the things that you are thinking and when I brought them up. Well, it is, I'll show you the, the listeners won't be able to see, but I will show you literally on my desk is man's search for meaning by Victor Frankl. I just, I discovered the book in prison. I had never heard of it before. Uh, I was very fortunate. The prison I went to, we had about 7,000 books in our library. We had a very robust library. And I just happened to grab this one book. I have no idea what the heck it is. I thought the title might be a little bit cheesy. I thought it was a little over the top self-help. And I read it and it completely changed my perspective on life in general. And it's something that the reason it's on my desk right now, I find this book so important that I reread it every year. And I'm in the middle of my yearly reread of Man's Search for Meaning. And it is, to me, I would hate to force anybody to do anything that they don't want to do, but I think it should be mandatory reading for everybody. I think it's that important. I think it is a gift to the world. It's such perspective to understand what this individual and every other individual who went through what he went through and that he came out and created this book and added so much value to the world. It is the most dynamic perspective shifting piece of literature I have ever read. And I love it. I love the, the will to meaning because we have the, the will to meaning, we have the will to pleasure and the will to power. And I think so often, back to what we were saying in a sense of society, we are trained either through commercials, social media, through our family, that the will to pleasure, seeking pleasure, um, drinking, Netflix. And I have no problem with any of these things, but if they become who we are, that's when we start getting an issue with things. Um, you know, sex, if it becomes an addiction, any of the, the pleasures, if they're driving us, we're going to find that it's very empty. The will to power is actually money because money is basically power and when people, you know, start pursuing that. And I was guilty of this as well. I was guilty of both of those. If we pursue those two things, we'll find them to be very empty. Will to meaning has purpose and fulfillment and we can endure any how when we have that why. And I, I just, I love, I mean, I love that you brought up that book. I'm, I'm glad I did. <laughs> you could probably tell, you could probably tell him a little bit passionate about man's search for meaning. And how did, so you found the book in prison at first, like what, how did it apply to you sort of like getting through those days? It was, there were so many analogies and I do not want to compare what I went through to a concentration camp. However, I'd be remiss to say that there were so many things that he mentioned in there that I was living real time. 
the de dehumanization, the, you know, the conditions that you're living in, just the life on the outside, not being, knowing that it's there, but not being able to connect to it. So it just really spoke to me as I was going through a very similar experience in real time. Equal to that was the horrors that he endured were so much worse than what I was sitting here complaining about where I was playing the victim. In the beginning of my prison sentence, I was very much pointing the finger at other people. I was not, I hadn't yet taken full responsibility, extreme responsibility for my behavior and playing that victim and whining about the fact that I'm in prison. And then realizing that this individual, there was a couple of stories. I hope you don't mind if I share one that really, Please. that really snapped me into reality, if you will. They in the concentration camp were living in extremely tight quarters. I mean, they were shoulder to shoulder. There was barely any room to sit down. And one evening, the gentleman sleeping next to Viktor Frankl was shaking and screaming, and he was clearly having a nightmare. And Viktor Frankl, his instinct was to grab him and to wake him up. And he pulled his hand back in horror of what he was about to do, because he realized no matter how terrible this individual's nightmare was, and think about this for a second, think about any nightmares that you've had and how insane they can be and what our subconscious can come up with, really think about and connect with how scary a nightmare can be. He realized if he were to wake him up, he was dragging him into a reality that was far worse than any nightmare could possibly be. And that to me is so powerful. And when I was in prison and read that, I said, wow, I need to change the way I look at things. Thank you for sharing that. Chills, I have chills. Um, is it okay if I read an excerpt that you wrote in the book about acceptance? Absolutely. So you write, I have to practice acceptance. I don't want to, but it feels like giving up passive. Fighting equals progress, but does it? What am I fighting against? As much as I wish it existed, there's no such thing as a DeLorean time machine. I've locked myself in the past that can't be changed in an existence that fills me with shame and regret. Fighting isn't progress, it's running away from the truth. I was wrong. Acceptance isn't giving up and it isn't passive. It is an act of courage. That was so cool. I've never heard my book read by somebody else out loud. So thank you so much for that gift. That was incredible. You're welcome. I have another one I'm gonna to read to you in a minute. Beautiful. <laughs> um, what did your path to acceptance look like? My path to acceptance, this, this acceptance quite literally was the first step in reinventing my life. I can, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I realized this was very definitive, very clear um, inflection point, if you will, in my life. I was sitting in the prison library and I was journaling like I always did in, in prison. I journaled a tremendous amount, something I still do to this day. But I was journaling about going back to being the victim, 
and a little bit of woe is me. And I was wishing that I was home with my wife and my dog and my cat. Mind you, she had already told me that she was leaving me. I wish I didn't make the choices that I made. I wish that I wasn't a federally convicted felon. I wish that my finances weren't ruined. I was wishing for all of these things. And it dawned on me, I can't change any of these things. They are what they are. And my intuition kicked in and it told me to then just start writing. I just started writing. I accept that I'm getting divorced. I accept that I'm a federally convicted felon. I accept that my finances are ruined. I accept that I'm in prison. And it was such a very painful process because everything that I was accepting was a really shitty thing to accept. And so it stung while I was doing it. But when I was done, I was was astounded by what I felt. I felt freedom inside prison because what I had done was I accepted reality. I was no longer living in the past. And by living in the past, I was staining my future in the colors of the past. I put myself in the present. It wasn't an ideal present, but I put myself in a present and that allowed me to say, okay, this is my life now. What am I going to do with what's next? And it was just a baseline. It was a starting line. I think acceptance is one of the most powerful things that we can do. It's also one of the most challenging things that we can do because really, you know, we're not accepting that it's a sunny day. We're accepting that it's a crap day and our plans that we had um, have gone out the window. You know, it's a very silly light example, but I think it just shows the power of acceptance, you know, of what can we change? What can't we change? What's in our control, what's not in our control. And it really, from there, the, the ball started rolling. Yeah. And like within that, the power of choice. The power of choice. That's so it's funny that you said that because it's actually looking back. It was my first three steps. I now call them my three A's. It was accepting responsibility. I mean, sorry, accepting reality was number one. Number two was accepting responsibility. And number three was accepting choice. So you end up leaving prison after 15 months. Um, and then you spend the following four months in a halfway house in Brooklyn and two months in your friend's apartment in Brooklyn with an ankle monitor. Um, you get a job working at the front desk of a gym, a job that you were connected to through a friend that you met in prison and you eventually become a manager of that gym. What was it like going from such a top paying career to working the front desk of a gym in New York City? It was such an interesting, it was such an interesting situation because I was so thrilled to have employment. It got me out of the halfway house. The halfway house was a terrible, terrible place. I hated the halfway house. So I had employment that got me out. I had employment that was very social. I was very awkward. I was still consumed by shame. I hadn't worked through all of that. And now I'm working the front desk at a gym. I've got to greet members. I've got to say hello to everybody. I've got to say goodbye to everybody. Friendships started forming. And I loved all of that. It really helped me develop back into society, if you will. And I'm so grateful for it. But on the flip side, I was making $12 an hour. And I did the math. And I used to make more in a month than I was going to make all year. And it's just, it was very... It was very humbling and it was very 
difficult sometimes to wrap my arms around. And in the, in the beginning, there were, at the beginning of working at the gym before I became manager, there were times I skipped dinner because I just didn't, I didn't have enough money to buy the Metro card to take the subway to get from Brooklyn to Manhattan where the gym was and, I, and, and a chicken cutlet. I mean, not even a sandwich, just a cold chicken cutlet in aluminum foil. Only if one guy at the deli was working because he would sell it to me for $1.50, the other people charged $2.50. So that was outrageous, but I didn't have $1.50 to buy a single cold chicken cutlet. And that's, it was very humbling to come from being able to walk into, you know, I had, I had a jewelry store, I had a watch guy. I could go in and buy a $10,000 watch without really thinking about it. Now I can't get a chicken cutlet for $1.50. Tumbling. Did you ever feel like you wanted to like explain to people that you once had this other life, that you once had this like fancy career and like you owned a home in Connecticut? Did you ever feel like, you know, you just wanted, we wanted people to actually understand who like your past life and where you came from? There was a little bit of that. Mm. There was definitely a little bit of that. And that was pure ego. Yeah. It was like, I'm not, you know, I'm not this guy working at the gym. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with working at the gym, but there was definitely that little, little bit of ego. But what I really found uh, was a compulsion to tell people that I had been to prison. Mm. As I started becoming friends with people, and I developed some of the most amazing friendships that I have to this day. The person in the epilogue of my book is one of my dearest friends. I met her at the gym. Ah, okay. So, I mean, this is, you know, it's powerful, powerful relationships. But I had this guilt that as I start becoming friendly with people, I felt that I was deceiving them by not sharing my history. And that was just pure shame. So I had, in the beginning of the gym and before I really started processing through that shame, I had a compulsion to tell people and to just get it out there so that they could decide whether or not they wanted to continue being friends with me. That is so interesting. Um, okay. That's really, really interesting. Did you ever think about going back to your old industry? There's a court order barring me from my old industry, but I did, I forget for how long, but I did apply to corporate jobs. I did try getting back into that. I was going through the interviews I would make it very far through the interviews. And I always told the people who were interviewing me, I told them about my past because I had this giant fear of, let's say I got the job and I was there for a year and I loved it and I made friends and I was like, this is great. And every single time my manager, my boss would say, hey, Craig, could you come in here? My heart would sink because if you Google me, it all comes up. I'm very Googleable in terms of the arrest and I just didn't want that. So I would share with everybody. And the interviewers all said the same thing. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I don't have a problem with it, but I have to check with HR. Oh. And you can imagine what HR said. Yeah. What did that, that feel one. like? It was, it was really frustrating because I did want to get back into that corporate life because it's the life that I knew, but I really understood that what I was doing was running away from what it is I really wanted to create. Because even though I was looking for those jobs, I was already writing, I was already writing the book. I knew I wanted to do speaking. I was thinking I wanted to do some form of consulting. And 
really trying to get back into the corporate world was running away from what I really wanted to create, which was my own business, my own thing. I wanted to be creative. I wanted to have that joy and fulfillment. And that experience of getting turned down from all of those jobs is one of the reasons I have, um, I have another tattoo on my ribs, which is the impediment to action advances the action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And that's from Marcus Aurelius. And I realized that I can't get into corporate. It's not going to happen. My obstacle is my criminal past. That's the way. I love that too, because you know we talk a lot about like you're exactly where you're supposed to be, and um, in that same sort of vein, um, you talk about um, the importance of building a foundation for a new life before being able to like achieve your dreams. I think also in the same vein of acceptance and choice and everything we've been sort of talking about so far, um, and also identity. Um, but you make this point that before you'll ever sort of know how to design a fulfilling life, it's imperative to understand who we really are. Um, and if you skip those steps, you might get to the fancy job and the big paycheck, but you'll still have all those same problems or feelings of unworthiness or unfulfillment. You'll just be living in a bigger house, um, which it's so true. And I, and I love this idea. Um, how did you arrive at it? It was through journaling. I've had my biggest epiphanies through journaling. I think it's one of the most magical exercises that anybody can do. And like I said, I started in prison and I haven't stopped. I do it every single morning. It's got so much value, but when, after my friend's visit, and I realized I was going to turn my life around, I realized that I had really burnt everything to the ground and that I had to rebuild. And so when I'm journaling, I'm thinking about rebuilding. And I kept on thinking of this word. I was like, if you're going to build anything, you need a foundation. You have to have a found, you have to have a strong foundation to build whatever, whatever. If it's a home, if it's a, a 60 story skyscraper, it's got to have a solid foundation. And so I just kept journaling about that word, foundation, foundation, foundation. And I started asking myself questions. You know, why did I do the things that I did? What was missing? What was, why did I sacrifice so much for so little? And the answers to those questions led me to start creating the foundation, which is made up of five pillars. Each of them can stand on their own and each of them is wildly powerful on their own. But when they're interwoven, I would honestly say, I feel unstoppable. I feel unbreakable. And the five pillars are, I trust myself. I am worthy. I am enough. I love myself. I accept myself. And if you really think about that, each of those, like I said, so powerful, if you embody them intrinsically, that's a beautiful place to be. But all five of those I literally think we can create whatever we want when we have that as our foundation. I know that was one that I created, but I believe it is universal. Yeah, I love that idea so much. Um, was it easy after prison for you to sort of let go of some of those old values or do you still hold on to any of them? Which of the old values? I'm just um, curious. I wanna... Like, um, you know, making a lot of money and 
having fancy clothes and and you know stuff like that it was it was a bit of a challenge to let go of those things because they were my identity mm-hmm. you know i thought i did need those things to be someone so it was a process of learning how to let go of that and part of that process was made easier in prison because you know i had lost everything i have four shirts, four pair of pants, four socks, four, you know, four boxers, um, you know, living in very scant means. And I realized how liberating that was, how liberating it was to not have all of my things because I didn't own my things. I was a slave to my things. And now not having any of those was so freeing, but it still was a challenge in the beginning to let go of boy, one day I'm going to, one of my favorite watches is a brand called Panerai. I was like, I'm going to buy another Panerai watch and I can't wait to have enough money to buy another Panerai. I could care less whether or not I have a Panerai now. It means nothing. (laughs) And it's so liberating. And if one day I do decide that I want to buy one, that's fine. I can give myself that permission to do it because I'm no longer identified with it. Yeah. It's like, it's okay to to have those things it's okay to still like wear nice clothing it's just like you said not identifying with it it's the difference and that's a huge difference huge difference and I'm glad that you said that because it is I'm all for nice things I am I'm I'm absolutely if somebody wants to go out and make a million dollars great go for it but if it's who you are it's going to be a very empty road and it's going to be, a, you're going to climb that very challenging mountain and find all of the things that you were hoping were there are not there. Yes. Yes. That's the most important piece. Yes. Thanks for saying that. You know, thank you for, for starting that. Cause that was, <laughs> I mean, that was a huge component of it. Yeah. Um, so even after all that you had been through and all you had learned about yourself, there were still these moments that you were sort of you were finding that you were in these moments where you had to um, maybe, you know, lie a little bit or exaggerate. Like, um, like at work, you said you had to do this with like some of the gym members. You couldn't tell like the full truth. Um, but also you tell a story about meeting up with Kyla after you were out for drinks and she, she asks you a big question um, and, and you still weren't completely honest with her about it. And I think I think it's really important to acknowledge that growth isn't linear. Um, and obviously that's why we can't change overnight. Um, what do you, how do you move through these moments that might feel like regression? With grace and compassion. Yeah. I think those are the two magic words with that is to, understand you you nailed it growth is not linear it is what i like to view it as is imagine a bar graph going up and to the right but as the arrow is going up it goes up and it circles back down but when it comes back down it shoots back up and it shoots up a little higher than it was the last time And then you go along on that higher path a little bit more, then you fall down and it comes back and it springboards back and goes up a little higher. And if you are to track both the highs and the lows, they're both up and to the right. 
And they think that's what's important is that it's certainly not linear, but if you look at it, it is just consistent. It's consistently going up and it's consistently going down, but the ups are higher and the lows are higher. And I think that's what's so important. And we do that with that grace and compassion. And I'm also a big fan of inquiry. Why did I lie to Kyla? I was trying to control an outcome. I was afraid to be honest. I was afraid of what her response was going to be. I was assuming all of these things. I was assuming she couldn't handle what I was going to say. I was, you know, it was all of those things. And just having that sense of inquiry and also asking, is this how I want to show up? Is this how I want to be? But doing it gracefully and compassionately so it doesn't turn into, because it can very easily turn into um, self-hate. Yeah. Under the, under the guise of self-improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, staying curious rather than in judgment is sort of what I'm hearing. That's a, that is a beautifully succinct way of saying that, saying that it is, yes, exactly. Just being curious without judgment. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> so hard. Yeah. It's, it's so hard because the voice of self-hate really wants to chime in. It sounds like it's protecting us. It sounds like it's doing the right things. And, yeah. oh, you were such an, you're a bad person for lying to her. Yeah. You're a bad person. And I'm, and because you're a bad person, I'm now punishing you. Yeah. Ugh, yes. Yeah. But as you said, it also gets easier and you bounce back faster and higher. You, <laughs> you, you bounce back higher and it does become easier. And again, just knowing like we're human beings, Yeah. you know, we're fallible. We're going to screw up. I still screw up. Plenty. Right? I mean, all the, but I also think like, let's actually think this is kind of important is I believe if we're not making those mistakes, if we are so worried about staying in our little box and that we're so worried about making mistakes, that's not living. That's not living a full life. That's not experiencing things, you know, it's, it's not like I want to purposely go out and make a ton of mistakes, but I can be grateful for them because it means that I'm doing something different and then I'm challenging myself and then I'm living. Yeah. And what a perfect segue into the next excerpt that I'm going to read to your book about fear. Okay. So you write fear. This is sort of a summary, but fear. Fear is the door that appears on the path when a choice must be made. No house, no walls, no supporting features, just a door in the middle of nowhere. It reminds me of an abstract Dali painting. I can't see what's on the other side of the door. It opens to a new and unknown world, and that scares me. My imagination tells me what's on the other side, and it's never anything good. The door is so easy to avoid. Why would I possibly walk through it? Then you continue... But every time I walk through the door, I'm transformed. I see fear for what it really is. Nothing more than a complex and often beautifully crafted tale spun by the imagination. No substance, only words. Allowed to run wild, fear will dictate my choices and in turn my life. Fear is the story I believe that prevents me from growing. I mean, this, this is everything right here. I mean, this, this is like why I started the podcast. This is just everything. Thank you. So beautifully written. Um, thank you. Oh, man. 
Um, so I'm curious, how has the way that you've navigated fear changed after prison? Fear was such a huge component of reinventing my life after prison. It was it weighed on so many different things and it took a lot of work to learn how to navigate it. But now I've reached a point where, and I think this is, this is really important and really, I think, I hope for everybody beautiful to connect with. I'm now grateful for fear. I have gratitude for fear because all that fear is doing is lighting my path. Fear is just a beacon telling me where to go. If I decide that I'm going to deliver a keynote speech or something like that, and I'll, you know, or so I get invited to deliver a keynote. Uh, and I mean, this actually happened. I'll be delivering a couple in, I'll be delivering one in October and one in December. And my first initial gut reaction when they told me that I'd be speaking for 90 minutes was, no way, I can't do that. It's too much. I don't have content. It was just all the fear, all the voices. And then to just be, take that step back, take a breath, be grateful for it because all of those things, it means it's exactly where I have to go. It's exactly what I have to do. So just being grateful for when I get that pit in the stomach, when I get that flush in the cheeks and understanding that it's just life giving me a big neon sign that says, go there. <laughs> do, I, do I follow the sign every time? No, I don't. I don't. And that is that what we were just talking about, that grace and that compassion. But just knowing that there literally is magic on the other side every single time. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. It's that everything we were talking about earlier, it's who we become in facing our fear and walking through that door. That's the gift. Yeah. Yes. And even if we fail, like you never fail because you always learn something. You're always, you know, a step ahead a step further you've always you've always only gained something yeah and i think i think i love that i love i love the way that you just express that because it's so important that to understand there's really there is no failure and that's not like a pithy little cliche thing that i'm saying there is no failure we did something it maybe didn't work out the way that we wanted but we did it that's what matters. That is all that matters. And we learn from it. Everything is, you know, the author, Sherry Huber, uh, who's a brilliant, brilliant author, but she says all the time, she's like, you can't make a mistake. There are no, you cannot make a mistake. As long as you're learning, you cannot make a mistake. And how liberating and freeing that is. Realizing, because it's so hard to get out of that little box that I was talking about before because of fear of making a mistake. Yeah. But if you realize that you can't make a mistake. Such a relief. <laughs> such a, such a relief and also a tremendous amount of pressure because that means, well, heck, now I got to actually walk out of this box. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have the excuse that I was relying on so heavily and so strongly. I don't have that anymore. Yeah. Now I actually have to do this thing. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> um, but then it's like this cycle of like, wait, but it doesn't matter because anything that happens is great. Anything that happens is a, is a gift. Um, just being just being open to what happens, being yeah. open to what is. Yeah, yeah. 
what is the idea of um, dating like now for you? Dating was a huge challenge when I got out of prison. It was, it was a massive challenge. I was actually very lucky that I started dating somebody at the gym when I got out of prison. I think I even still had the ankle bracelet on when we started dating. She was amazing. She was awesome. It didn't work out for reasons that just relationships don't work out. Then I went into this three, three and a half year funk, if you will, where I said that I was working on the book and I said that I was doing all the deep inner work and trying to create what it is now that I have created. And that's all true. I was doing that, but it was shame. There was a huge, it was 50, 50. It was half doing the work and just really diving into that world. And the other half was shame because, you know, I went on a date or two here and there, I would go in these little spurts and people would inevitably ask me because, you know, you're out on a date and it's like, oh, how did you end up at the gym? And there's really only one way to answer that. And it was also, I wanted to be honest. I wanted to not hide behind my story and people react very differently to it. And what I realized in the beginning was people were reacting, and I don't want to say poorly, but there was never a date number two. You know, they weren't outwardly rejecting me, but there was never the follow-up date. And I realized that I hadn't forgiven myself and I hadn't processed that shame. So when I was delivering the information, I was still judging myself, which opened the door for others to judge me. So when I started working through that and came out the other side where I no longer judge myself, where I've forgiven myself, if I do go out on a date, I will, I deliver the news in a much different way. The words are still the same, but the energy behind them is completely different and it's received completely differently. And I was also very fortunate. Um, we, we recently broke up and I was in a relationship for just under a year. And she is an amazing human being. And I told her on her first date, 15 to 20 minutes into it. And she said it threw her for a loop, but she wanted to see where things went. And it's, it's, it's something that I also view as a really good filter. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody doesn't want to see where things can progress just based off that one piece of information on me, it's a great filter. Then I actually don't want that person in my life. It's that same idea of like staying curious and non-judgmental. Correct. Yeah. Um, you talk about Metallica a lot. What do you love so much about them? <laughs> I do. I do talk about Metallica quite a bit. It's funny. I put up something. I posted. I posted something yesterday for National Suicide Prevention Week, mm. and I quoted the Metallica song "Fade to Black." I reference Metallica in my book. I reference Metallica in my TED talk. I went to, I went to sleepaway camp when I was in eighth grade, going into ninth grade up in Maine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd never heard Metallica before. And this kid comes in, he could just tell he's like the cool kid. You know, I mean, we're in eighth grade, but he's got the long hair. Sure. <laughs> he's got the boom box. And he says to everybody in the, in the little cabin, he goes, do you guys want to hear something? We're like, yeah, what do you, what do you got? And he put on Metallica, uh, Master of Puppets. He put in the tape and he put in Master of Puppets, which is phenomenal. The first song is Battery. And it starts with a little Western kind of guitar sound and then just goes into, like, as soon as I heard those first opening notes, 
I'm little eighth grade Craig, just like, whoa, what is this? And then it just goes into this thunderous speed metal. And I immediately just knew at that point, whatever this is, I want more of this. I want more of this. This jives with something inside of me. I absolutely love it. My first concert was Metallica. My sister took me and my friend who came to visit me in prison. Uh, we were, I think, I forget how old. We were probably 16. And just to see Metallica do what Metallica does live, just further reinforced everything. And then really starting to listen to, listening to the lyrics and seeing that it's not just this thunderous, fast, some people might even say, you know, obnoxious, but it's not just this racket that there's actual poetry behind it, that there's actual meaning behind it, that James Hetfield writes, uh, he's the lead singer, he writes most of the lyrics and is really a pained soul who's sharing his innermost thoughts with us in a very visceral way. And I, I think that's really what I love about Metallica. <laughs> and is it mostly just Metallica or do you like all heavy metal? I like the I like a lot of heavy metal. So it would be Metallica and Black Sabbath are my, my favorites. Um, Iron Maiden, very close, like number three. I enjoy Pantera. I enjoy Slayer, Disturbed. I enjoy a lot of very, and to look at me, nobody would really think that I'm a metalhead whatsoever. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this music, but I can also listen to a lot of other stuff. I mean, I love, there are plenty of John Denver, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. I love that song. Kenny oh. Rogers, The Gambler. I love that song. I mean, I definitely, I go, I go, I go fairly far across the spectrum. I like some of the mushy songs, you know, Louis Armstrong, It's a Wonderful World. That's just beautiful. That's just an amazing song. And I'll, I'll, I'll actually pull back the curtain just a little bit and I'll share one that will be totally out of the blue, completely opposite. But um, what is it? Somewhere would not, is it Kermit the Frog? Um, somewhere over the rainbow. Or, somewhere um, over the rainbow. Not somewhere no. over the rainbow. Um, um, oh my god, I know what you're talking about. He sings it at the beginning of the Muppet movie. Why are Why are there Why are there so many songs about about rainbows? About yes. rainbows. Yes. Oh, the um. What is it called? Oh my god, it's I'm from totally the Muppets blanking. movie. It's from the Muppets movie. Oh my god, I'm blanking on the name, but I love that song. Me too. It's a really good song. And it's Kermit, a really good song. Kermit does a wonderful job. <laughs> very talented. He's very talented. Um, <laughs> all right. So. <clears throat> oh, Rainbow Connection. Rainbow Connection. Oh, thank you. Did you just look that up or did you think of it? No, no. It just came to me. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> um, all right. So, so eventually you leave the gym and um, not that long ago and you start your own business coaching people through um, reinventing themselves. You call yourself the reinvented, a reinvention architect, which is of course super fitting. Um, as you said, you're a keynote speaker, you gave a TEDx talk, um, you wrote this incredible book and you're also, um, you mentioned a member of the a white color support group for people who are dealing with the shame of being in prison and the decisions that they made that got them there. Um, that's a lot of accomplishments in not that long of a time. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, 
I've been like debating on whether to ask you this question, but I'm just going to ask you, um, are you happy? What a, what a wonderful, wonderful question. And I mean, the short answer is yes. It is, I'll, I'll tell a story that I think will maybe capture all of this. So it took me about six years to write the book from first word to getting it published. And my publisher sent me advanced copies, advanced hardcover copies, uh, a couple of weeks before it actually was available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And so I got the box, I bring it upstairs into my apartment. I actually did, I've re- recorded this for social media because I thought it'd be, you know, it would be good. I cut open the box and I held my book in my hand for the first time, this culmination of six years of so much hard work. And it was to date the most powerfully emotional experience I have ever had in my entire life. It was a flood of emotions of all the shame that I had felt in prison that I really thought I had worked through. All of that came flooding in, but it immediately washed out. It was the feeling of absolution and redemption. And I started to cry out of pure happiness and joy. And I realized at that moment, I created that, that there was nothing extrinsic. There was no thing. There was no watch. There was no money. That was all of my work that went into that and that I can replicate that at any single time that I want. And that is a joy and happiness and fulfillment that I never had in the past that I now know, like I just said, I can recreate that whenever I want. And that's the longer answer. Talk about freedom. It is, it is, it's, that's, that is pure freedom. Um, where can people find the book and where can people find you? The book is on Amazon. It's Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. It's available on Kindle, paperback, and hardcover. And then my website is craigstanland.com. I'm also on LinkedIn under Craig Stanland and Instagram, Craig underscore Stanland. Awesome. And I will include all of this information in the show notes. Um, Craig, I can't thank you enough for coming here and give me, giving me your time and answering all of my questions and all of your vulnerability. And um, this was so great. This is, this is such a fun conversation. Molly, thank you so much for having me on. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for creating this podcast and giving people an opportunity to share their stories in a setting like this and the questions that you ask and the insightfulness that you brought to this. I want you to know that I generally appreciate you. And so thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. That means so much to me. You're very welcome. Well, thanks so much and um, good luck with everything. You too. Take care. Thank you to Dan Davin for my music, David Harper for my artwork, and all the people encouraging me to keep going. I'm Molly. This is I Am This Age. See you next time.